2: You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
0: The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: There is a general belief, at least amongst the Islamic State militants, that if you're killed by a woman, you're not going to go to paradise. So this makes them particularly a threat.
0: Islamic State has many enemies, around the world and in the Middle East. But there's one group of fighters that the men of Islamic State fear more than others. Because to be killed by them doesn't lead to martyrdom, but to an eternity in hell. These fearsome warriors are members of the Kurdish Women's Protection Units. And in this week's War College, we look at the role they, and other women, are playing in the war against Islamic State. You're listening to War College,
2: a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind
0: the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters Opinion Editor Jason Fields and I am Matthew Galt, Contributing Editor at War is Boring. Today we're speaking with journalist Benedetta Argentieri. Uh, She spent the last few years covering the wars in Iraq and Syria um, and she does it from the female perspective, which um, can't make life easy, I'm going to guess. Benedetta, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, in the West, there's this narrative that Kurdish forces uh, deploy women uh, onto the battlefield in combat roles um, and that women are uh, what e- uh, equally in the fray. And I just wondered how true that was.
1: Uh, I think that first we need to make a clarification because uh, we tend to believe uh the Kurds as a monolithic group, which they are not, they are very much politically divided. And within those groups, there are many differences. I think that the ones who are deploying uh, women actually on, on co- in combat, they are the YPG. And the YPG is the People's Protection Unit, mainly operating in Syria and some part of Iraq, such as Sinjar. And they have a whole female unit called YPJ that became a very, very famous troop, pictures and stuff of like journalists that went over there. The YPG is also linked with the PKK, the terrorist group, like so called terrorist group uh, uh, for NATO and the US and Turkey as well, of course. And because of this connection, their ideology overlapped in a lot of ways. And the PKK was the first one to actually start this uh, uh, All-female unit kind of concept and so this is why you have these two groups That operate both in Iraq and Syria that deploy women. It's not really that true for the Peshmerga Because the Peshmerga, who used to have a woman on the front lines now? They are kind of more protective of their woman. So that's not that true. So they mainly have logistic or um, roles or that kind of things or intelligence, but they don't actually fight.
0: Gotcha. Um, And so actually, I guess we should uh, spell out the PKK. And um, I guess if uh, uh, YPGs allied to it, they're actually communist slash socialist, right? I mean, it's they're not an Islamic group.
1: No, they're not. They're a secular group. And within the groups, there are like several different religions uh, that uh, people are actually observing. And they, are, they used to have a Marxist kind of group, but now they're shifting to a more new concept, a political concept, which is called uh, uh, democracy confederalism, which is a kind of, a, they kind of abandoned that Marxist uh, ideas uh, to a more open to democracy kind of thing. It's a very complicated like concept but it was their leader, Abdul Öcalan, that imprisoned, because he got imprisoned in 1999, started this shift.
0: Okay, well that makes sense. I guess I was just um, thinking it was worth mentioning in that, um, I mean, because part of socialist ideology has been equal rights for women anyway and I just thought it might be helpful to explain some of the differences. It is, so.
1: especially in a place like the Middle East, that's a kind of a revolution you know, to have like female, uh, uh, kind of a feminist revolution within the revolution. So like one of their ideology is, well, what uh, Abdullah Ochlan is writing is that there is no real revolution of the press if first there is a woman liberation movement. So the two are very much linked again.
2: All right, well, Benedetta, can you tell us about some of the female soldiers you've met? Uh, What were they like, what did they fight for?
1: Uh, well, I was very lucky because I was able to meet several uh, women fighting in several uh, trips. I made. I think that the first encounter uh, was in Syria last year with a sniper unit, a whole sniper unit that was stationed in Til which is at the border, the Iraqi-Syrian border. And it was a group of seven, and originally there were twenty. Uh, Thirteen got killed in the in the past years. So uh, there was a German girl. Uh, a German woman who was the leader of the unit, and uh, she was orig- she is originally Kurdish, Irene, but she uh, but she was born and raised in Cologne. And when she saw the ISIS advancing, she decided uh, to drop out of school because she was in med school and uh, link up with um, with the YPJ. Uh, the important thing is that most of these women, when you talk to them, uh, they are fighting not just ISIS or Daesh as they call them. Uh, as they call the Jihadi, but they're fighting for freedom and equality for women in the Middle East and uh, around the world too. So they want to show that women are capable to do exactly the same jobs that men do, and um, and they're equally um, good at it. So this was uh, it's a perspective that most of them have on the battlefield. And also another woman I met that I really like to mention her is she's uh, called Bariton and I met her in Sinjar in March and uh, she's a PKK commander and uh, who joined the PKK about 10 years ago and uh, she was, uh, she arrived in Sinjar as soon as uh, ISIS attacked and helped many of the civilians were fleeing the area to actually uh, flee and um, her duty when I met her was human rescue. And, um, so she would, uh, what her job involves so was gathering intelligence within the city of Sinjar and, uh, try to, uh, understand where civilians trapped with ISIS or enslaved were, uh, kept and, um, and during night, uh, she would sneak in with like five other women with just her AK-47 and two hand grenades and liberate them. And, uh, in the, I, in the, Ten months of war, I mean, in ten months that she was there, she was able to free more than 100 people. So she was a pretty incredible person to talk to.
0: They have actually a, their own agenda at the same time that, I mean, it's, it's just another reason to fight. It's not just uh, for their homelands
1: when you join one of these militia groups there is a big part of indoctrination as well so both men and women have to uh, study the genealogy what is their called genealogy and it's uh the translation is the science of woman and uh, this is part of their ideology so again as you said they just don't fight they fight for whole thing
0: well so i was going to ask um are they famous in the uh, in the area? I mean, are the people they fight with or the people they fight against, is there a particular notoriety around them?
1: I think there is, and uh, especially after uh, the great fascination that the West had with, her, with them. So they became more famous, like, in the past year or so, because, again, these female units were established before, even this work kind of started but now they became pretty famous and there is a, a mutual kind of respect uh, between the, uh, um, let's say the woman Peshmerga and the YPJ and especially woman Peshmerga admire them and they think that they are very good at what they are at what they do. So yes, I think that they became very famous, and also they became very famous amongst the Islamic State. Uh, we've seen, I, I mean, at least I've seen in the past, like Islamic States uh, publishing pictures of, the, of certain kind of, of certain snipers of women, you know, and uh, and uh, and, uh, and uh, they wanted them dead. Because uh, there is a general belief, at least amongst the Islamic State militants, that if you're killed by a woman, you're not going to go to paradise. And uh, so this makes them particularly a threat.
2: Right. They're, they're an important piece of the psychological battle uh, and the propaganda battle against Islamic State, right? Absolutely. Uh, and to kind of switch tracks just a little bit, what is it like? What is life like for women on the other side, for the Islam in the Islamic State? I know you that this is something else that you've written about quite a bit.
1: Uh, yes, I did write about an uh, Islamic State woman, and I think that we tend to victimize women who join this Islamic State. We tend to say, "Or oh, poor girls, they've been brainwashed, they've been tricked into this," and this is might be true for some of them, for the younger woman that actually joined the Islamic State, but I'm sure that there is a part that actually joined the Islamic State because They wanted to join. They wanted to join the Jihad and uh, they wanted to have an adventure within like strict Islamic rules. Because, you know, for out of the 500 women, Western women that are believed to joined the Islamic states, some of them, yes, they joined because they wanted an adventure and probably because they didn't have anything at home that, you know, was uh, good enough for them there is a misconception that most of the women from the West are uh, really young. Uh, actually, I was talking to um, a professor at Duke University, She's she's uh, Jane Hockerby, uh, she did uh, many studies on women joining the, uh, the, the Islamic State, and she said to me that the average is 25 years old, and most of these women are well-educated, and some of them hold degrees and stuff. So it's very difficult to understand the psychology of women that actually Uh, And it's true for men and women. So there are and also there are a lot of misconceptions about it.
0: And there are actually women uh, who join Islamic State who, whether or not they're fighting on the front lines, they are given Kalashnikov rifles and are set. I mean, at least, you know, according to what I've read, honestly, uh, it's not certainly firsthand experience, Um, but uh, they at least keep their sort of morality police for women, for the other women.
1: Yes we, you are referring to the al Kansa brigade which is yes, a that's female right. yes it's a female unit that serves as moral police and they are operative in Raqqa and Mosul so in, in both of the big cities and they are being trained not just just with the AK but also with the sniper weapons and uh, their their first duty is to impose the sharia law on women and uh, some stories I heard are horrible, horrifying, because they torture women who are not dressed properly or don't uh, observe properly the Sharia law, or maybe you know some part of their skin is visible, and they and they and they do pretty horrible things to them and to each other.
0: Yeah, the New York Times actually just had a whole article that they ran on, I think Sunday. Uh, it was fascinating looking at uh, three women who came. Uh, were now in refugee camps, but had been among that brigade, um, talking about actually how they, if someone was dressed with their, uh, you know, was just a little too tight. I mean, it was the same black robe, but it was just a little bit too tight. You know, you could be brought in and and some people were tortured after that. Sorry, Matt, you you wanted to say something?
2: Benedetta, going back to something that you'd said just a little bit ago that I thought was really fascinating. Um, You said that from your perspective, these women are looking for a sense of adventure within the strict, the, within the strict and safe confines of uh, Islamic law and Islamic teaching, and I, I think that's that's interesting and speaks to how these Western women get enticed into going over there. But I also was wondering about what what is the message that they're receiving from Islamic State specifically? Like, how is Islamic State targeting them and drawing them in? What does the propaganda look like? What does the messaging look like?
1: I think, well, the propaganda is very fascinating. Also, uh, me- I think it's something worth mentioning is that mo- many arrests that are being made in Europe are recruiter and uh, recruit mainly woman recruiters that are targeting women and young women. Also, because we need to, you know, understand that in the ideology of the Islamic State, this state has to be populated, so they need women to come along. And I think that... you know, it's like there are several kind of different propaganda and uh, in January in 2015 the Alcanzar Brigade did publish a manifesto and it was for women under the Islamic State and in which they say, OK, there is the Sharia law here. And uh, so you cannot go outside by yourself. You have to obey the Sharia law and everything. But also, you can be a teacher, you can be a part of a society, you can be a doctor. And, uh, and but your their main duties I mean, uh, is uh, to get married to the jihadi and uh, and they promise to they promise woman to, you know, get when they when you get married, you will get married to a jihadi who will adore you and uh, it will, you know, do everything for you and you'll be happy because this is what you are supposed to do. I don't know if it does It makes sense, but it's a very complicated uh, propaganda and agenda. And also, I I just read a, a paper actually published by the Reuters Institute by this uh, person called Ma Rukali. And uh, what this says that ISIS uses women also because they know that uh, the propaganda will be picked up by the Western press. So it's a kind of double standard. And I think it's an interesting interpretation on how ISIS propaganda machine actually works.
2: Speaking to that, you've also covered um, the Italian Lady Jihad. And I think that also kind of, that's an interesting story that, that speaks to a lot of what you're talking about. And especially the West's tendency to, like you said, look at these women as victims. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about her and her story.
1: I think the lady she had is anything but a victim here. I mean, she is uh, um, she's called, her name is Maria Giulia Sergio. Then when she converted, she uh, choose, chose the name of Fatima. And she's a 29 years old woman who came from a really Roman Catholic family. And uh, she moved from outside Naples to Milan when she was like 12 or 13. And uh, when at university she converted to Islam, she said in several interviews before actually joining the Islamic State, it's because uh, uh, her family friend brought back from some trips some paintings of uh, Islamic paintings and everything. So she started studying and uh, she loved Islam and she converted. Uh, so her, her conversion st- started as a moderate, but she used to uh, wear a hijab. And then uh, a few years later, uh, through the local mosque, she radicalized because she met other women. This is what the police have said. And uh, when the, in like June 2014, she started like... Uh, um, saying that she wanted to go to Syria. To go to Syria, she needed a husband. So she went up to the recruiter and said, please find me an husband to go to Syria. After a few months, they found this guy who is a Bosnian guy, and uh, they arranged the marriage. So they married in September 2013, and a few days later, they made a trip to Turkey and crossed into Syria. But the interesting thing is that once she joined the Islamic State, she... Uh, used to talk to her family on a daily basis and her family converted as well all her family so mother father and a sister and a young and older sister actually and uh, once she was in Syria she started convincing them saying you need to come and join us uh, the, the Italian police actually arrested the whole family before they could make the trip. But uh, I thought it was very interesting uh, because we heard also the conversations that uh, they had over Skype and over the phone. And it seemed very much that she wanted them to come because she needed to prove to the Islamic State that she was a good Muslim. So all her family, so my my understanding is that if you go and join the Islamic State and you're able to bring your family, then you kind of scale up the hierarchy kind of thing. And so this is why she was very keen on
0: this. Uh, So do you know what her fate is? Is she still in Syria? Uh,
1: From what we know, she is still in Syria. She's about 30 kilometers from Raqqa. But in the meantime, her mother died, uh, actually in prison, and her father said that she's evil, and that he wanted to convert back to Roman Catholicism, and uh, also because I think that she is going to trial very soon, and this is a way to try to mitigate what the court will say.
0: Well, that's uh, definitely not, I had not heard a story exactly like that before. Um. female fighters, I'm just wondering what kind of lives they have other than fighting. I mean, do they have normal, like, you know, family lives, and are they an integrated part of the community, or is it, you know, um, like, uh, because the only stories you can, and that, that pop into my head are like Amazon warriors, you know, they're supposed to be a breed apart, and, you know, I mean, the mythology around it, you don't necessarily think of people You know, women who are out fighting as having children you know, I mean, the the modern conception is a little different.
1: So about especially the YPG and the PKK, uh, there are really, really strict rules, both men and women. So if you become a guerrilla fighter, you cannot have any romantic relationship whatsoever. So this is a really, really big part of their ideology because you are kind of married to the cause. So if you start having relationship, that will, you know, uh, take away tension or even, you know, um, uh, tension or anything from the battle. So this is a very important thing. Their lifestyle is mainly amongst themselves. So. Uh, whether they are in active combat or not, they have like duties, and also they talk once a day about their feelings. So, or about so they have like in the afternoon, if they're not f- actually fighting, they have like a kind of an assembly in which each of them stands up and criticise one one another. And uh, I thought it was a very fascinating way to live. To, to wow. Sometimes they do. Okay, so the men and women are completely distinct, so they even, you know, their bases are different. They have some moment, moments in which they meet and they talk, and but usually they have a very distinct life.
0: Okay, so yeah, very different than uh, female soldiers in the Western tradition. I mean, whether it's Israel or in the United States, where female units are becoming more integrated with male units, I mean, yeah, there's nothing really special. Beyond, I mean, the whole point is to make the groups integrate, men and women to integrate. And this is actually a matter of making people very distinct.
1: Interesting enough, I was talking to a veteran uh, the other day and he was telling me, you know, that this um, kind of uh, strict rules about relationship is very good. Because sometimes what you see in the American army or other army in the world is that then it becomes a mess. If you start having interrelationships, it can really affect your way to combat. So, I don't know, maybe it's more of a kind of manpower kind of point of view, but I can see what he says, that having relationship in active combat can be a little bit tricky.
2: I've got one more question for you, Benedetta. What about women fighting on the front lines for Islamic State?
1: This is a very tricky subject and very open to a debate because the main problem I think that ISIS doesn't want to openly admit that women are fighting and uh, but throughout my trips I've collected several evidence that there are women on the battlefield on ISIS's side and some of them are actually fighting so uh, the first thing is that ISIS has a very big group of Chechens and uh, the Chechens women have been fighting Forever, basically. And so, if you had like this part of fighters coming, for sure, women will not stay behind. But I think most importantly is that I talked to several like foreign fighters, and particularly one Italian fighter used to. Uh, Who joined the Kurds, and he actually showed me pictures of uh, women's bodies on the ground. And uh, the interesting thing uh, there were three women. The interesting thing is that they were not obviously dressed with uh, any cover or anything; they weren't covered. They were actually dressed like men, exactly like men. And because ISIS, uh, all of them, they have like kind of long hair. They really blended in from afar, from far away. Uh, He also he was telling me that he believes that. Uh, there were many women on that front and which was the Ahasaka front So near Raqqa kind of thing because they had a huge group of YPJ uh, So woman fighters so they thought that sending a woman fighting woman was better than uh, the men fighting man if it, and uh, also um, As you as we previously said women have been trained and to weapons, to snipers, to stuff. And it does make sense that when in news they call them, even in the manifesto that we cited before, the Al Qaeda Brigade manifesto, they say that if an emir uh, allows, you know, in times of need and stuff, uh, an emir can make a fatwa and ask them um, and ask the woman to join the fight. Uh, my personal takeaway of this is that there are women fighting, not a lot, but some in like in, in certain kind of like front. But I think it really depends of again, of the hierarchy and uh, that they are in, and it that depends very much on their husbands. So the more up in the hierarchy, the husband, the husband is the more chances that she has a really active role into ISIS, whether it's fighting or whether it's like ideologically. I don't know if you remember there was, there's been a raid in May 2015 by Delta Force in Syria it was the successful actually a raid in Syria by the U.S. Army and they killed the Minister of Finance of uh, of ISIS and in the raid they actually arrested. His wife, Umm Sayyaf, who's now in prison in Erbil, and she is believed to have had a really active role into ISIS, whether it's slavery or even like in the organizations and logistics. So it really depends again. But what is true is that ISIS isn't talking of publicizing that at all.
0: Definitely a very different side of the story.
1: ISIS do enslave women quite a lot, so like yeah. let's try not to mix up the two things. But it's also true that, you know, at least from the evidence I collected, that there are some women fighting.
0: What was it like covering this? I mean, you know, when you're actually in inside the country, is it hard as a woman to do it? Um, were people welcoming to you?
1: I've never had really a problem, especially when I embedded or stayed with the YPJ and the PKK, because uh, you stay with a woman. So what happens is even if we were a group of two, three journalists, I uh, I was staying with a woman. And I... Honestly, I never felt so safe in my life. I I would go anywhere with this woman because they, I recognize that they are really good at what they are. And um and and as a general, I think that with them I never had any problems. With the Pashmurga, you can see that they have a more kind of Western mentality, if you see what I mean. So they were. Uh, Like very welcoming, but also objectifying me, taking like 500,000 pictures of me on the front with them. And uh, so that was a little bit tricky sometimes because I had to stop them and saying, "Okay, guys, now I really need to do my job and I need to write. I need to talk to you. I cannot take 500 selfie with you because (laughs) I can't. other than that, I never had really any problems. I really felt like a superstar, I have to say.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, again, thank you, Bernadette. I really appreciate all your time. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: That was the 20th episode of War College. Thank you to everyone who listens to the show and for the wonderful reviews on iTunes. We're going to take a break for a couple of weeks, But we'll be back in January to talk about how weapons programs go wrong and why the B-52 may become the first warplane to see a century of service. Next
2: time on War College. One of the contributing factors to this and for why programs can cannot get canceled is something that we refer to as political engineering, which is spreading out the subcontracts for each of these weapon systems. So each member of Congress has a stake in the success of the program. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?